Welcome to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. We've all done it. We hear the news that company A has sponsored rights holder B and in that split second we think to ourselves, of course that partnership makes sense or we think, hang on, what the hell, how do those two brands go together? Or Maybe we aren't sure straight away and we start to think about it more deeply and work through how it might or might not be a good fit. But interestingly, while there will most likely be a a whole bunch of well-thought-out benefits, messages and activations in the partnership, it is that initial question of, do they go together, that communicates so much to the market. And that's why the communication impact of a deal should not be underestimated by either rights holders or brands. In sports particularly, fans are connected deeply with and invested heavily in the rights holder and sponsorship deals can fuel either greater loyalty and connection, and that can be transferred to the sponsoring brand, or it can fuel distaste. What? How the hell do those two brands go together? Was a common reaction to the seven-year, 600 million US agreement in 2012 in which US-based Chevrolet became a sponsor of Manchester United, and personally, I remember thinking to myself, can you even buy a Chevy in the UK? That deal sparked an interest in how sponsorship deals convey subtle messages. David M. Wojciechschlager, Christoph Backhaus, and T. Bettina Cornwell, all established and respected academics at universities in Germany, England, and the US, set out, in the context of sports, to examine How sponsorship deal characteristics affect consumer inferences, attitudes and behavioural intentions toward a sponsor and a sport property in a partnership. The resulting research is titled Inferring Corporate Motives, How Deal Characteristics Shape Sponsorship Perceptions. It sounded fascinating to me, so I reached out to the team to see if I could get my hands on a copy of their paper, and they kindly obliged. Cue the late-night university assignment flashbacks as I waded through the academic paper and did my usual trick of having to read the page multiple times before I actually understood it. Still, it was a fascinating piece of research that struck me as having implications and learnings at all levels of sponsorship, and that's why I invited David, Christoph, and Bettina on the show so that we could break down the research into some easy-to-digest pieces for us. I'm your host, Daniel Oyston, and welcome to episode 42 of Inside Sponsorship. However you listen to the show, if it's at your desk, walking the dog, on the bus or the train, or at the gym, and wherever you are in the world, thanks so much for tuning in. It's great to have you with us. And we love hearing from you because we love hearing from listeners what they're up to, what they're working on, and whereabouts in the world they are so that we can give you a shout out. And that's what Clinton Tudor, Chief Revenue Officer at Interlike did. Clinton, thanks for shooting me a message to say hi. I'm glad you're enjoying the show and I hope all is well in New Zealand. Also joining us on the show is Sam Irvine, Sponsors Territory Manager for Australia and New Zealand. And Sam has written a blog about why you should utilise brand ambassadors and four steps to doing it well. Here's Sam. Sam Irvine, welcome back to the show. Thanks very much for having me again. For our listeners right across the world, Northern Hemisphere listeners, uh, summer for them. For us, back end of winter, Canberra, very, very cold, but you've got a nice tan. <laughs> Having uh, just landed from Fiji with a family, yes, I definitely yeah. was feeling the minus five this morning much more than most <laughs> normal Canberrans. It was I think. cold. It was very, very cold this morning. And uh, if 
you're like most parents who travel with kids, you probably need a holiday after that <laughs> that uh, that flight back. When uh, when Mark said to me, "Welcome back," how was it? And I was like, "Which part?" The uh, <laughs> Fiji was wonderful. The flight so much. I'd love to write a little blog on uh, on Fiji Airways and flying with uh, two toddlers, but I'm sure that yeah, <laughs> I've already got long. the I've already got the perfect sponsor. Do you know what Fenergan is? <laughs> Just knock those kids out and you get yourself a, a, a nice little drink though. and watch a movie. No, I've heard it can backfire it can. Really big time. It, 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 it can. So you need to get your target audience right. That's that's the one of the, the keys. Now, um, you're joining us to talk about your most recent blog and something that you think can be a really valuable asset or, or string in the bow of a rights holder. Yeah, definitely. It's been really enjoyable to go back and think and see what some of our really cool clients are doing in different spaces, whether it be activations, digital, etc. And it really opened my eyes around different things I could have done differently back uh, back when I was in that rights holder space. And then more recently too, just to give a shout out to the Kanga Cup, which is a big youth football tournament here in Canberra, um, and one of their big sort of brand partners as well, worked really well with an athlete in that space. And it got me thinking, wow, like oh, I had that asset at, at my at, at, at ready to use and I never really used it well or I never really engaged the sponsor or the partner well enough to use that type of asset, a brand ambassador, whether it be a player, appearance, behind the scenes, um, team appearances, et cetera. But that whole concept, I wish I'd have used much better. Because mm. it, it, it is valuable if done right, isn't it? Definitely, doing it right is really key because if you're forcing it down someone's throat or if it feels really fake, we can all really smell you know, a fake player appearance or when a, a player's being forced to be there, if it's at a meeting or at a sponsor's lunch and you can tell the player's watching their, their clock and getting away from, you know, wanting to get away from there and not engaging or understanding why they're part of that brand, then I guess you really missed the mark. Because while it's a clear benefit to the sponsor, it can actually give a huge boost to maybe the rights holder, but also the athletes that are involved or the personalities that are involved, right? The ability for this this type of benefit or this type of relationship to uh, to help all all of the parties involved is really cool. I think that's the difference. There is a lot of the time, all three parties can get as much out of it as the others. You know, like the the player being able to potentially increase their brand, and if done right, the rights holder really look like a great community partner. They look like a great partner for other athletes, and, and really they look like a great potential partner for other sponsors as well. Mm. I think it's really interesting. So you've you've written a blog about why you should utilise brand ambassadors and four steps to doing it well. It's always good to have the steps. What's number one? <laughs> number one. Now, I, I stuck to four. I wasn't sure again. Like, I'll have to go You can make whatever number you want. So next, if you haven't got your next blog sorted out yet, it has to fit into it's six. Like, all right, my Fiji Airways, six, <laughs> six for Nurgan flights. So what's number one? Number one was objectives. Yes. So really making sure that, the brand ambassador, that yourself and that the brand, and sorry, the rights holder and that the brand really understand the objectives they want to achieve by engaging a brand ambassador? Because it's not going to be right for all uh, sponsors, is it? Because no. it's going to depend on the objectives they want to achieve. Mm. Well, if you're looking for a big brand impact piece, player ambassadors might not necessarily really work for you because you're not necessarily getting that logo placement, you're not getting the the really big ad spots that you want in that space. But if you want to be more strategic, if you want to talk about creating relationships with other brands or creating one-on-one discussions with the community themselves, then that's really going to be a really key uh, benefit to use. So what are the objectives that you've identified that you think and it's always going to depend on the execution, right? Um, doesn't always fit nicely into, mm. into little piles. And, and also potentially what other benefits you might ex- uh, 
execute alongside of mm. it. But what objectives have you identified that you think brand ambassadors are really well placed to help you know, a brand achieve, a sponsor achieve? Uh, ones I've identified would be brand positioning, relationship building, community engagement, so really getting in there and talking to that grassroots or talking to those fans one-on-one and getting their engagement, getting them understanding and really wanting to hear more about your brand. Building an audience, same sort of thing too, right? You're getting people to actually open up rather than being shut off and thinking it's just an ad. They're actually being willing to engage in that space yep. and generating sales, which we all love, right? But I guess the, the key thing there are those are five really broad and different objectives that could help a number of different brands. And if used really well, you could utilize your building an audience and community engagement all in one, plus generating sales. So they all work really well together. And it's probably one of those benefits that you don't just put into a proposal and make the assumption that the brand knows what it is or how it would be executed, right? General admission tickets, VIP parking, hospitality. So it's pretty straightforward. You know what to expect, how that's gonna be executed. But a brand ambassador is probably one you want to sit down and talk through and get their ideas on how they could use it before positioning it to them in a proposal, right? Definitely. And and I think that's one of those things you can't, as you said, you can't just throw it in there. It can't just be Facebook shares because that doesn't really work that way. It's not so simple. And I guess what I was quite lucky with when I was working with a couple of brands back in right total land was that one or two of them were already doing it well in their space. So they understood, let's bring it local. Okay, you've got a national brand ambassador, etc. Here's what we could do locally. Here's who we suggest. And here's some of the ways that we could work together on it. Yeah, cool. So start off with the objectives, which we think you should start off with always in those discussions. Um, those key objectives, brand positioning, relationship building, community engagement, building an audience and generating sales. Have a conversation with the sponsor or potential sponsor and talk to them about whether a brand ambassador might be something they're attracted to. We've got that sorted. Big tick. Next. Next. Available talent. So I'm talking from a rights holder's perspective and from a brand here, right? So when you're a rights holder, who have you got? Who are your key characters? Are your key players? Are they the, the best player on the team? Are they the captain? Or are they the person that's most likable by the community? Or someone that's really aligned to the um, specifics of a particular brand? So you need to sit back and go, all right, who am I going to really offer up? Or who, are, who is going to be a really cool ambassador for me to utilise as a rights holder? What helps us make that decision? I guess a lot of it would be based around more than anything, the objectives to start with too. So having that discussion and then identifying the characteristics that you want to achieve from a certain brand ambassador or player. So are they community driven? What are they geographical reach in socials? What are the, what is their appeal as far as age demographic goes? Those type of things I think would be key to identify at the start. Budget? Do budget. we need to consider budget? Well, definitely, right? Not every brand Leading will be question. Able, <laughs> not every brand will really be able to, to be to go out there and actively seek the bigger and the, the Buddy Franklins of every team or the Joe Watsons of every team, right? They could be more strategic about that and go, all right, we'd love to work with three or four upcoming juniors rather than trying to spend all the money at the one big superstar. And then identifying, all right, if we've got to spread across these three juniors, they've come from different grassroots bases, they've got a whole different fan base, et cetera. So you can be smarter with your budget in that space there as well. Yeah, very good. So objectives, we've looked at the available talent. We think we've got the budget and we've looked at their reach and the the type of characters and what we want to do with them. Next. Time frame. Mm-hmm. So really, one of the funny things we always struggled with back at um, at Capital Football was the timing of the year of our really big ticket items, such as Kanga Cup or W League. So the W League predominantly being over summer, 
whenever brands wanted us to really reach out and get players to appear or help with some tweets or shares or Facebook posts, etc., they weren't engaged. They weren't actually players part of Canberra United or part of Capital Football's program at the time because the timing was right off. So are you looking to utilise those brand ambassadors while they're playing, while the season's on? Once again, that's going to be more difficult because they're training, they've got other commitments, they've got other bigger sponsors or, you know, sponsors just as big to deal with. Or are you going to utilise that time off season much better, right? So can you access their lives away from the field? Can you get that behind the scenes sort of look that doesn't come with playing on the football field or netball court or tennis court or whatever it might be? and really engaging the community or your fan base or their fan base in content that's a little bit different, a little bit tweaked and a little bit more sort of quirky. So that focuses on us looking at seasons, which you know usually from year to year, season to season in terms of summer, winter, that type of thing, um, and also key dates and, and yearly calendars. But we also probably need to consider uh, the, the time frame, like the length, of engagement is that a key consideration? I definitely think so, right? So you've got to really understand that consumers and fans are really going to get understand those links with the brand over a longer period of time. So if you're a flash in the pan and if you've just been linked with Nike for five minutes, it's not going to build up compared to, say, Mark Taylor and Fujitsu Air, which we all have a big laugh about. <laughs> summer, summer is coming. <laughs> no, it's not. Not the way the, the boys are playing <laughs> at the moment. So, And then you really look at other brands and other personalities that are involved over a longer period, they have a lot of more cut through. So I think the longer you can look at engaging that, Ambassador is definitely going to have them, you know, yield so much more fruit. And for me, it almost becomes, and doesn't completely morph into this, but when those ambassadorships sort of start, those endorsements start, it is takes a little while to get used to, right? Oh, he's endorsing Rexona now. Oh, he's endorsing Fujitsu. But over a period of time, they almost become synonymous with each other. And particularly if it's during a season like Mark Taylor and Fujitsu, like you'd probably think the world is slightly off if you didn't notice a few Mark Taylor Fujitsu ads, right? That's a really good good point. I mean, you look at Powerade and Billy Slater for argument's sake, right? He doesn't have to wear Melbourne Storm or Kangaroos or Maroons jerseys to actually stand out and have that impact. And you've seen enough Powerade ads now to know that it's not forced, it's not awkward, they're genuine partners in a way, and you don't sort of feel off-put. Same thing, though, next week if he came out with a Gatorade ad because he was getting some more money, that would feel really yeah, fake and agreed, really forced. Agreed. So objectives, available talent, make sure we consider the time frame, uh, both in, in, in terms of cycles with seasons but also the length of a, a relationship. What's the fourth one? Really making sure that the relationship and partnership is mutually beneficial. We talked about it at the start briefly how it could really be an effective tool used by rights holders, brands and by the athletes or teams themselves, but really making sure that the brand's image isn't damaged by an athlete feeling taken advantage of. Yeah, because it, it's obvious when they feel resentful that they're there as part of a, oh, I think it was uh, Dan Freistack in, in his interview that was talking about you know that using an ambassador mm. and somebody that can actually engage well versus somebody who can talk for 60 seconds and then looks really <laughs> bored and jumps on their phone. Exactly. Yeah. Dan nailed it in that one. You're right. So true. And really understanding that the rights holder is not selling a poor example of how to use a really powerful benefit. So if they really don't use this example of a brand ambassador well, then they're going to burn their bridges with the athletes and they really haven't set a good example of how they can use it for other potential yeah. partners as well. Good. Anything else? 
Well, really making sure that the athlete or team are open to working with the brand in a flexible and engaging manner. And this slightly goes back to the athletes checking their watch or being too busy on the phone, etc. But understanding why they're a core part of this relationship and why they've been brought on to really help build a relationship, help the rights holder become a bigger and better brand, etc. And making sure that they understand it really can be beneficial for them individually as well. Yeah, of course. So just to go over those and recap, number one, objectives. Number two, available talent. Three, the time frame. Four, making sure that we uh, are flexible and and that it's mutually beneficial Mm. for all three parties, the right side of the brand and the the personality. We've all probably got really good examples of athlete endorsements or or ambassadors. Mm. We'd love you to hit us up on Twitter or um, Sam's published article on LinkedIn or any of the groups that we've shared it in or shoot us an, an email if you've got any that you really love. Or just as importantly, if you've got any that really did not hit the mark and we might get a bit of a giggle out of it, we'd love for you to share it. Um, otherwise, head to the website, sponsor.net, head to the resources and the blog section and you can read everything that Sam's just spoken about in detail. Um, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'd like to get my present from your holiday now. Thank you. The seven-year, $600 million US agreement saw Chevrolet become just the fifth ever shirt sponsor of Manchester United. Chevrolet follow global powerhouse brands including Sharp, Vodafone, AIG and Aon as being on the front of the famous red shirt. Now the numbers would seem attractive to any brand. Manchester United play in the most watched football league in the world and at the time of the deal it was watched in 643 million households in 212 countries. Plus Manchester United also plays in the Champions League where another 360 million passionate football TV households watch the games and particularly in those countries where they are probably more likely to watch their national competition than the English Premier League. Those numbers were certainly attractive to Joel Ewanick who was then head of General Motors Marketing. While the numbers and the opportunity might have looked attractive, it seems the fact that promoting Chevy would clash with GM's existing Opel and Vauxhall brands in the UK and Europe, and that fact was ignored. At the time, Chevrolet was basically a non-entity in Europe. However, the fact that nearly half of Manchester United's fan base of 659 million people live in the Asia-Pacific region, and it might have been that global exposure in, in a lot of markets that proved too hard to ignore. The previous shirt sponsor was Aon, and GM executives were not at all happy when they learned that they'd be paying 7.75 million US more per year for the same property. There were also whispers that Ewanick had failed to provide all the details of the deal to his superiors, and so less than 48 hours after it was announced that Chevrolet would be Manchester United's new shirt sponsor, Joel Ewanick was sacked. As I said earlier, that deal sparked an interest in how sponsorship deals convey subtle messages. And David M. Wojciechlager, Christoph Backhouse and T. Bettina Cornwell, all established and respected academics at universities in Germany, England and the US, set out in the context of sports to examine how sponsorship deal characteristics affect consumer inferences, attitudes and behavioural intentions toward a sponsor and a sport property in a partnership. The resulting research is titled Inferring Corporate Motives, How Deal Characteristics Shape Sponsorship Perceptions. It's a fascinating topic and a piece of research. And that's why I invited David Christoph and Bettina on the show so that we could break the research down into some easy to digest pieces for us. 
Now, this is the first time we've actually had multiple guests in different locations. So there was Australia, Germany, the UK, and the US. And so I recorded this interview on Skype when I would normally do it on the phone. So I was a, I was a bit nervous about how it would turn out uh, with different in, internet connections and, and levels. Uh, but for the most part, it went off without a hitch. Uh, there might be one or two little lags and a few little volume discrepancies here and there. But overall, I think it's great. And it's certainly an awesome chat. Here they are. Hi everyone and welcome to the show. This is a bit of a an epic production because all of us are in different countries and different time zones and this so this is definitely a first for the show. Let's start with you David. Can you let us know what your first ever job was and then a little bit about your current role and particular areas of interest at the moment? Yeah. Um, during my studies of business administration, I worked as a consultant on various marketing research projects. So um, um, I became interested in practic- um, practically relevant research and then decided to follow an academic career. And so during um, that career, that consulting interest remained. And so now I'm a professor of service management and also work as a consultant in the area of customer relationship management, brand management and sponsorship research. Very good. Christoph, you're next. Can you let us know what your first ever job was and then a little bit about your current role and particular areas of interest? Yeah, uh, I did an apprenticeship in banking. And as part of that, I was in customer service where maybe some experiences got me curious about what would happen or what's happening at the interface between management, employees and customers. And uh, yeah, so until today, uh, I'm interested in looking at how managerial decisions um, drive employee and customer related outcomes. Um, I work as a professor of marketing at Aston Business School in Birmingham in the UK. I'm also director of our newly established Aston Center for Retail Insights. Um, yeah, and uh, therefore my research is primarily in the retail and services context and then also, of course, in sports marketing and sponsorships um, to which very similar questions apply. And finally, Bettina, can you let us know a little bit about your first ever job and, and then about what your current role is now in particular areas of interest? Sure. I'm, I'm- interested to know about Christoph. We learn about each other on this program because I didn't know he did a stint in banking too. So yes, I did a a banking stint as well and and, uh, service, uh, consumer relationships, um, and uh, became very interested in sport and sponsorship. So I'm now head of the Department of Marketing here at the University of Oregon. And I wear another hat as uh, um, academic director for our sport marketing center. Very interesting. Now, David, I invited you all on the show to discuss uh, your recent research, which was titled Inferring Corporate Motives, How How Deal Characteristics Shape Sponsorship Perceptions. Where'd the idea for the research piece come from? Well, uh, actually, uh, this idea originated from the fact that most of the research um, on the market focuses on consumer perceptions of sponsorship and limited knowledge exists how objective firm actions influence sponsorship outcomes. Um, But those deal characteristics, uh, they vary really tremendously. And so therefore, we were interested in learning if those objective deal characteristics are noted um, at all by consumers. And if so, how they affect sponsorship outcomes such as brand attitude. Now, Bettina, it's important for research pieces to actually contribute to the body of literature around a subject. How does this research do that? 
Uh, that would echo what David just said, and that is that really the, the research had not considered how it is that people who are audience members for a sport um, actually pick up and learn about the deal characteristics that are at a managerial level. So it wasn't even considered how those might influence people's perceptions, uh, but we showed that they do. Another thing that is uh, interesting in this study and an imp important point for what has happened before is that we also show that these deal characteristics as compared to individuals who are not aware of a sponsorship relationship, that they influence outcomes positively. Hmm. I think it's a fascinating subject, but before we dive into it too deep, Christoph, it's, it's important to outline a few or, or some of the key terms or theories that the research incorporates. The two important ones are attribution and identity theories. Can you just briefly outline what they are? Yeah, briefly is a bit of a challenge, but I try. <laughs> so um, attribution theory basically centers on explaining how people make sense of behaviors or generally speaking, like anything they observe. And in our paper, we draw on a particular model here, which is called the multiple inference model. And uh, that helps us explain why such an observed behavior, in our case, the fact that a company is the sponsor of a sports club, sometimes is seen positive and sometimes might be, might be seen in a negative way. Um, based on the assumptions about certain attributions or motives um, that are made by somebody who perceives such actions. And then we have identity theory, which um, can be used to explain how we define ourselves and also our relationships to others. And uh, what's interesting here, or an important bit in that is that there is some assumption that people can adopt multiple role identities in their lives. Um, one might think of somebody who has the role of a teacher or a professor at a university, for example, and then he might also have the role of a father and maybe also be the fan of a favorite sports club or whatever. And now identity theory argues that if I very much express and show that I am a fan, for example, then that fan role identity is very important to how somebody defines um, his or herself and also to how others see that person. And we apply this idea to sponsorship and say like, okay, if um, a sponsor very much expresses um, a what we call sponsor identity, which is about supporting the club and um, not so much seeing the relationship as a business, then this probably ends up in a different perception as compared um, to a sponsor that very much is at the angle of we see this primarily as a business kind of thing. Okay, great. So, David, can you please set the scene for us a little bit, just at, at a big picture level? What did you set out to understand from the study and broadly, how did you set about to achieve it? Um, yeah, sponsorship um, has become a big business, um, yet the understanding about the effects of those managerial actions that we just talked about on consumer level reactions um, is limited. Um, sponsors spend huge amounts of money and may need to justify those things, if not now, but uh, surely more so in the future. And so our study aims to connect those levels of analysis, the managerial level with the consumer level, and we try to do that um, empirically. We were interested in understanding if um, objective deal characteristics such as contract length or sponsorship fee 
are associated with uh, specific motives that Christoph just talked about uh, by consumers. And if these motives translate into brand-related sponsorship outcomes that are typically measured by, by market research agencies, such as uh, brand attitude or loyalty. Sponsorships and intentional behavior, a, a rights holder and a brand intentionally choose to enter into a sponsorship together. And because it's an intentional behavior, it is subject to attributions of intent from consumers. Christoph, what does that mean and what might people infer from a sponsorship? Yeah, here our argument uh, in our research is that even if people do not know every detail about a particular sponsorship deal, um, people try to make in some way sense of that coming together of the sports team and the brand. So that means that if you look at a particular sponsorship and you realize there are two entities, the club and the sponsor, um, which now engage in a relationship in some way, then you tend to make an inference about the fit and also you ask the why question. So trying to understand what uh, drives the decision of um, coming together. Consumers observe the characteristics of a sponsorship, as you said, even if they don't know all of the elements of that sponsorship. They observe all those characteristics of it and they consider the fit between the partners and then attribute effective, normative and calculating motives to the sponsor. Christoph, can you expand on what those three motives actually are and what they mean? Mm-hmm. This is what we refer to in our, mo- in our model at the consumer level, basically. So what happens in your mind when you observe such a such a partnership, uh, independent of how much you know about the deal characteristics, probably? So maybe an example, when I buy flowers for my girlfriend, um, there are, in essence, three motivations for which I could do this, either because I really want to do it from my heart, so to say, I'm, uh, yeah, I do not expect something back or so. Uh, it's it's really of the at the core of what I want to do. Um, or I might think there's something in it for me in return if I do it, so more for an egoistic motive. Or it might also be that I feel she might expect it, and so from time to time you should buy some flowers for your girlfriend, you know, something like that. So in general terms, these three motivations, which we refer to as effective, the I really want it, the calculative one, the there is something in it for me, and then the normative one, uh, which is I feel it is from whomever expected, this is the three basic motivations that can drive such a decision in all different areas of life. And we then transfer this idea to the, to the sponsorship. And um, here it's quite straightforward to assume that probably all of the time where sponsors uh, decide um, to do to engage in this this uh, idea of doing marketing, basically, um, then probably always a calculative or somehow commercial motivation uh, is part of that decision, um, which is also embedded in the in the definition of sponsorship uh, by nature. However, we could see from the answers of our respondents that um, also perceptions of affective or normative motives um, play a certain role in our sports context uh, when people are asked about the motives um, out of which a brand sponsors a particular club. 
I think, uh, Christoph, I'd definitely fall into the, the, the second motive where there's something in it for me because usually it's a result of me having done something wrong and I'm, I think it's going to get me out of trouble. But, Christoph, let's... let's, let's <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think a lot of listeners of, of the male variety are probably nodding their heads. So, Christoph, once a consumer has attributed motives to the sponsorship, as you just outlined, they then input those inferred motives into attitudes towards the club and the sponsor on a number of levels, don't they? Yeah, um, but I, this is maybe not so much an active process um, by which that happens, but it somehow um, it, it happens at the subconscious level and quite much at the same time. So you are really not really aware. Now I consider the fit and now the motives or something. This is all uh, a bit of a mixed mixed um, yeah, setting, so to say. But in essence, we found that both aspects, fit and inferred motives, are important aspects to consider uh, when one wants to understand consumer reactions to sponsorship. And so we incorporated both uh, into our model. Now, the research looked at eight different hypotheses, and we're going to look at each of those uh, individually. The first is inference of effective motives and what they are positively related to. David, can you explain what that one is about? Yeah, um, according to the theories we use, um, effective motives are inferred by consumers uh, when sponsorship forms from free choice or good intentions directed at the sponsored property. For instance, if sponsors support a sports club to keep it alive. Um, consumers perceiving an emotional attachment of the sponsor to the property evaluate the sponsor brand more favorably and are also likely to be more loyal to the brand. Bettina, the second hypothesis is is similar but it looks at the inference of normative motives doesn't it yes so um, normative motives ask this question what should the sponsor do so what should Christoph do he should buy flowers it's expected <laughs> of him, right um, so uh, yeah so this this idea of normative in informing uh, perceptions about motives, people say, oh, they should be doing this, they should be doing that. Well, how do they come to this idea that sponsors should be doing anything? So in instances where you find normative motives, a, a nice example is that if the headquarters of a firm is in a, a town and they have a sports team, individuals may infer that they have sponsored because well, they're headquartered here, they should be the sponsor of our home team, right? There's a relationship and you can see it and therefore um, a, a normative motive may be implied. So that's also has downstream consequences that we look at to say, well, if, if you are responding as we think you should and we infer these normative motives, then, well, that's good. And we have positive attitudes toward the sponsor. David, hypothesis three looks at the inference of calculative motives being negatively related to attitudes and loyalty. Can you expand on that one? Yeah, that's problematic. Now the bad motive for buying flowers has found the right person <laughs> in the other team, <laughs> in the logic. <laughs> but uh, fortunately, uh, my, my spouse is not uh, uh, listening to the interview. So uh, the, third <laughs> the third remaining reason why firms engage in sponsorship um, is for selfish uh, reasons. And um, 
if consumers get suspicious of this partnership intent, um, they are more likely to infer ulterior or egoistic motives of the sponsor, such as the fear that uh, sponsors exploit the club for purely commercial, selfish reasons. Um, for instance, they they act in all kinds of commercial activities in halftime shows, etc., which is especially in our first research background, Germany, not at all popular. Um, the sponsor's brand is then likely to suffer from uh, those calculative motive inferences. Bettina, Hypothesis 4 looks at sponsorship fit and what positively impacts the perception of that, doesn't it? Yeah. So um, fit is this idea that things match or they're congruent, they go together nicely. So, uh, for example, in the sponsorship context, a running shoe being um, the sponsor of a running event sort of makes sense to people, they fit together, they they have a comfort with that understanding. Whereas an insurance company sponsoring a running event, they might say, whoa, why are they here? Do they really fit that they belong? Or milk, or you know, <laughs> lots of different sponsors might, might suffer a lack of fit, and a, a lot of sponsors will be very uh, comfortable with fit. So when one has a fit relationship, running shoes, running event, um, there's there's a considerable research that shows that that uh, can have positive downstream uh, benefits. Uh, so people say, oh, I get this, I understand it, and they can have positive perceptions uh, because of that just the presence of fit. Bettina, hypothesis five is similar to four, the one we just spoke about, which looked at sponsorship fit. But hypothesis five looks at the positive relations to contract length. Yes. So with contract length, you can imagine that I see my firm sponsoring and they're taking a long-term position. And in that long-term position, the idea is that they might be sponsoring them over long um, periods where they might be a winning team or a losing team. And that suggests to an individual, well, they really are, there's something positive here. They're not just in it for, as David was discussing, these calculative motives. Hypothesis 6 looks at, and we touched on this a little bit earlier, I think, Bettina, you mentioned it when a you know, head office might be in the region, but number 6 looked at regional proximity of the sponsor to the rights holder. Christoph, can you expand on that one for us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, referring back to what Bettina touched uh, already, here we assume that sponsors who have some regional link or who are regionally close compared to others to their clubs are um, better off in terms of their perceived fit and our two positive motives, that is the affective and the normative one. And in turn, if you look at a far distant sponsor, um, then all other things equal, then that one should be perceived as acting more out of calculative motives. Um, because here, this natural connection, because of the regional link, of being close to each other is missing for far-distant sponsors, and that might make such a sponsorship a bit more uh, challenging to manage. David, sponsorship fee was looked at next in Hypothesis 7, and what it is negative related to, doesn't it? Yeah, um, a problem with sponsorship fees uh, is that they are often highly visible and in high-profile sports such as football, 
Uh, high sponsorship fees are typically associated with high media exposure and large audience attendance. And such fees may communicate that the sponsor is simply buying media coverage and therefore elevate um, attributions of predominantly calculative motives. So um, high fees almost give the impression that sponsors buy success instead of earning it, and uh, fans don't like that. Um, but in contrast, and also referring to the second study, we find that uh, high sponsorship fees could also lead to feelings of gratitude in grassroots context. So this is a bit of a contradictory um, statement, but we may come to that later in our uh, when we when we look at the results. And lastly, David, Hypothesis 8 examined high prominence sponsorships and what they are negatively related to. Can you explain that? Yeah, here we uh, argue that prominent sponsorship types such as naming rights uh, or shirt sponsorships may be perceived negatively because they highlight the business role identity of sponsors, as Christoph explained earlier. Um, a higher level of prominence in sponsorship type is, is likely to increase the likelihood that consumers will perceive a firm as less committed to its sponsor role identities um, in caring or supporting um, the property and therefore uh, have negative effects on the sponsor brand. So David, with all the hypotheses set, you conducted the research across two studies. What was the first study? How did you execute it? And, and what did you find? Yeah, uh, the first study was conducted in the context of the German Bundesliga Football League. Um, the cool thing about the study is that we combined two data sets in our analysis. Um, yeah, while this may sound a little geeky, um, the advantage of this approach uh, is that we collected consumer level data of approximately 3000 respondents to measure motive inferences, sponsorship fit and uh, sponsorship outcomes and match them with uh, objective deal characteristics of 44 sponsors. Uh, with this approach, we were able to show the, um, the effects of objective differences in sponsorship deal characteristics on consumer perceptions of those sponsorships. Uh, what we found is that um, brand attitude of the sp sponsor is dominantly affected by the inference of effective motives and sponsorship fit. But we also found that inference of calculative motives um, harm the brand. More importantly, we found that differences in deal characteristics matter. Uh, for instance, contract length has a positive effect on affective motives, and in addition, sponsor motives are perceived more favorably if the geographical distance between a sponsor and the property is closer. Uh, especially international sponsors are perceived as less effective and as more calculative. Um, another important finding is that um, higher sponsorship fees are associated with calculative motives. Sponsors spending more in this high-profile context are perceived as selfish. Similarly, we find that naming rights sponsorships as a high prominence uh, sponsorship type uh, is associated with calculative motives. So um, a lot of um, the, our findings actually confirmed our um, hypothesis. So Christoph, what was your motivation to conduct the second study? Yeah, um, having done the first one, what could say, okay, then we are done now. Um, but somehow we wanted to know um, if the effects we found were um, yeah, solely observable in the football or soccer context um, and if they would also work in a different type of sport um, or if we would maybe see completely different uh, picture here. And therefore we chose a handball, which is a little bit less popular in Germany, but it's also a professional sport and um, obviously sponsorship does also play a certain role here. And so we thought that's, that's a a decent context uh, for our second study. 
And what was involved in that second study in terms of how you conducted it and what, and what did you find? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, also to, uh, to do it a little bit differently, uh, to be more um, confident about our findings, basically, we uh, did this not as a, as a field study with um, all kinds of different really existing partnerships, but we conducted the sample study as a scenario-based experiment. And that works um, so that you present your participants with a fictitious press release, or one way of doing that, this is by a fictitious press release. Uh, and we did so um, informing them in this press release, informing our participants uh, about a new sponsorship deal that a fictitious brand has just closed with a really existing club from the German Handball League. And um, the idea of such an experimental design is to provide subsamples of our total sample we uh, yeah we asked to participate with slightly different information regarding the nature of the sponsorship deal and so some people were informed that the contract was valid for two years and others learned that it was signed for 10 years for example and also we what is called manipulated the other um, sponsorship characteristics to see if that would make a difference in how the respondents answered to our set of questions about fit and motivation and brand attitude, Um, the same that we used in the first study, actually. And while many of the results of the two studies are pretty much in line with each other, we found that effective motives matter more for sponsorship outcomes in soccer than in handball. Um, And we thought that could be uh, um, interpreted as, in so far as effective motives are probably more appreciated in a high-profile sport in which um, you uh, find a relatively high level of commercialization um, yeah, all the time, so to say. Yeah, that, that um, makes sense. Also, high, mm-hmm, also higher spending was uh, similarly related uh, to higher calculated motives in both studies, but in handball, this did not really harm the brand. So it seems in handball that consumers might see that as um, more a supportive means and thing to keep the sport alive. Maybe also related to the generally lower level of commercialization in that type of sport. Now, the paper lists some general discussion points. The first is that both studies show that sponsorship fit and the attribution of effective motives result in positive attitudes toward the sponsor. Bettina, can you expand on that point for us? Sure. Um, So reflecting uh, what both David and Christoph were saying, we have two very different studies, a field study and an experimental study. And across both of those studies, we can see that FIT operates as we expected it it would. So if if the brand that is the sponsor and the sport go together, and have this matching or congruence. This is supportive um, in terms of downstream uh, behaviors, such as positive attitudes, and then we can expect um, intentions to buy the sponsor's brand, to speak positively about the sponsor, all kinds of down downstream positive outcomes. So that these affective motives, the feeling that I'm in it to buy flowers because I want to, right? <laughs> I'm in this because I, I care about this team. I'm as a brand, we're part of this team. We um, we communicate that, and others in audiences, and as fans and as non-fans who learn about the relationship, uh, believe in this affective motive. 
then that also has these positive downstream um, outcomes, such as this positive attitude toward the sponsor. A second discussion point is that the research shows that deal-making characteristics significantly influence consumer inference-making about sponsorship partnerships, doesn't it, Bettina? That's right. That is our key contribution, that these deal-making characteristics at the managerial level, which were not thought even thought about, they weren't on the radar in terms of how might they influence the average person experiencing a sponsorship relationship, learning about it in the news, reading about it, um, you know, uh, in their social media, that there was no real consideration that this could influence their, their inference making. And, but we show it does. Now, both studies found evidence that regional proximity, and we touched on this earlier, regional proximity contributes to higher sponsorship fit and attribution of affective motives, and yet it dampens inference of calculative motives. Christoph, that's a that's a really interesting one. Can you explain that further? Mm-hmm. Um, so generally speaking, in both studies, um, we found that geographically more proximate sponsors are somehow better off than less proximate ones. And in the soccer study, um, consumers looked at regional and also national brands more favorably compared to international ones. And yeah, the international ones are generally seen as more calculative. And in the handball study, we also had the opportunity to look at what, via our experimental design, to look at what happens if an international sponsors commit now um, to a club for a longer contract period. So we could mix up the two deal characteristics and see if that makes a difference. And here we interestingly saw that the negative connotations generally associated with far distant sponsors um, can be counterbalanced um, by longer contract uh, durations. So meaning that you are not completely hopeless, so to say, as an international sponsor, but there are other things you can do um, to signal your long-term commitment and your um, that you really uh, are, have an effectively motivated, um, or that you do this for an effective motivation. Keeping that long-term love relationship going with flowers. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a different that, that kind of story. But. Yes. <laughs> now, David, finally, both studies also show that higher sponsorship fees are, and I, th- I think this might be an obvious one, but I think it's, it's probably still good to dive into it a little bit, that higher sponsorship fees are associated with the attribution of calculative motives. But why is that? Is it as simple as... There's a large amount of money and it must be done for, you know, calculative motives. Yeah, probably it's 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 going into this direction there. Such expensive engagements are clearly more prominent and visible and therefore consumers uh, simply infer that more costly sponsorships are more likely to be linked to higher expectations of, um, of sponsors um, for their return on investment. And in contrast, subtle persuasion attempts um, common with smaller fees are less likely to generate resistance to communication. However, we find those um, um, important differences between our two studies, as Christoph explained earlier, that that in our high-profile football sports in the first study, we find those uh, strong negative effects. And in the second one, the grassroots or more or less the less lower-profile sport, we we don't find those 
those negative effects. And we we've um, explained this as those uh, that those handball fees um, are maybe uh, seen as as keeping the sport alive, as Christoph pointed out. Now, f- for the listeners, this is a really important question. David, in light of the findings from the research, what are the implications for sponsorship professionals, both on the rights holders, so sports teams, or, or, or any rights holder in any industry, to be fair, and the brands who sponsor? And what do they need to keep in mind to mitigate any negative inferences about their sponsorships? Yeah, there are a lot of implications um, from our research. And I think the first one, Bettina um, just explained, um, so the key implication for sponsorship management and all, all partners that, that uh, are um, in parts of the deal is that um, managers of sponsors and sponsored properties need to realize that those deal characteristics really matter and, and they can contrib- contribute positively to sponsorship outcomes or they can also harm these outcomes. So this is a real important finding. And um, this has important consequences. Um, For instance, um, instead of communicating facts, um, partners should uh, think about um, announcement as um, communicating about sponsorship motives. This might lead to differently crafted communications. Uh, Relating to the specific findings, uh, managers might want to emphasize the objective of sponsorship longevity in both sponsorship selection and decision regarding possible terminations. So in our German Bundesliga, we we find frequently um, sponsors who only sign deals for one or two years. And then um, we we find further evidence in our study now that this is really not helping them at all in terms of brand attitude. Um, sponsors also need to be concerned with uh, negative effects of sponsorship fees. Um, maybe one approach uh, to solve this is that the could clearly explain and emphasize to their audiences um, what benefits um, um, are derived from such uh, sponsorship spendings. So what is the benefit for the fans, for the club? And um, so by doing that, um, this commercialization motive or this egocentric, egoistic motive might be um, reduced. Also, uh, managers of sponsor properties should not treat sponsorships as purely revenue-generating activities. Uh, instead, they need to be aware that sponsorship decision-making conveys messages to fans and other stakeholders. So similar to sponsors, sponsor properties should prefer long-term commitments to sp- uh, short-term sponsorship deals and weigh the value of regional partnerships higher than international sponsors. Club managers, and that's our final one, um, should also actively try to avoid perceptions of sponsor investments as being overly dominant. Because then, uh, and we find this in a related research, um, then f- especially fans perceive that the sponsor um, yeah, takes um, away the club from their fans. And uh, that's also negatively perceived. David, Christoph, and Bettina, I think it's an absolutely fascinating chat, and it's it's great to hear some real academic rigor being applied to the sponsorship industry. So congratulations on your research. It's, it's a great piece. Bettina, if people want to get in touch with you and, and connect maybe on LinkedIn, Twitter, or, or find out more about your research yourself, what can they do? So on Twitter, I'm Bettina Cornwell. Uh and at the University of Oregon, I can be reached by email at tbc, my initials, tbc at uoregon.edu. And if, if you forget all of that, just Google me and I'll come up under T. Bettina Cornwell. <laughs> David, if people want to get in touch with you, find out about your work and your research, what can they do? 
Yeah, unfortunately, they cannot. They can't do nothing because they they cannot spell my last name. <laughs> most likely, <laughs> so it's a, it's okay. We was... will we will put some uh, links to everybody's uh, yeah. profiles and and things like that. We won't put email addresses out on the internet, but we will we put we'll put links yeah. to. So you can just say it. But that's fine. We'll put the links in. Yeah, yeah. That's that's perfect. So um, I'm always happy to um, to send or explain um, um, more of our research and. Um, so uh, I'm 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 also on those uh, contact plat- platforms like LinkedIn um, uh, under my first and last name David Voisitschläger, and uh, yeah, probably you look up the internet and then you you'll find it. <laughs> we'll point them in the right direction. Finally, Christoph, if people want to get in touch with you or find out about your research and your work, what can they do? Yeah, basically uh, same thing. Um, so if nothing does help just uh, type my name on google <laughs> or google scholar so christoph with f uh, back or you can go via our um, aston center for retail insights website and also on the aston business school marketing department website it should be quite straightforward to find my profile um, yeah and if you would put on our email addresses and the links to our profiles that would be uh, of course helpful and uh, we would be also um, all the time interested in uh, doing more with practice, which is a little bit our ambition to bring academia and practice more together. Yeah, and I think uh, together there, there's always something beneficial in such a relationship. I would 100% agree. And for the listeners, of course, we'll provide a link uh, to their research in the show notes so that you can go and have a look at that in detail yourself. David, Christoph, and Bettina, thank you so much for taking us inside Inferring Corporate Motives, How Deal Characteristics Shape Sponsorship Perceptions. Thank you, Daniel. It was awesome. Yeah, thank you for this great opportunity to, to share our research findings. Yeah, uh- Uh, Also from my side, great fun and thanks for your time. Awesome chat with David, Christoph and Bettina. It's a really interesting subject and the results certainly give both rights holders and brands some important things to think about in their deal making. A very special thanks to Bettina who kindly made herself available at 5am in the morning uh, in the US to accommodate the rest of us who are in the UK, Europe and Australia. She told me pre-interview that she hadn't even had a coffee. Uh, so, Patina, uh, you're a star, a superstar. Thanks again. Be sure to head to the show notes at sponserve.net where I've provided all the links if you'd like to connect uh, with the guys as well as a link to the research so that you can get a copy of that. Don't forget to head to sponserve.net to read Sam's blog. And, of course, if you aren't getting the blogs or the podcasts direct to your inbox each week, then shoot me an email or sign up at sponserve.net. If you'd love a shout-out on the show, just like Clinton, then be sure to get in contact. I know I say it most shows, but we really do love getting emails and LinkedIn messages from you guys, just letting us know where in the world you are listening to the podcast from. If you haven't already, do us a massive favour and head to iTunes and leave us a review. Reviews help others, just like you, find the podcast and learn from others in the industry. So it is really important, and I hope you can help. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net. And, of course, you can connect with Sam Irvine on LinkedIn, I-R-V-I-N-E, or you can email Sam using sam at sponserve.net. And don't forget that you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship.
thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes, blogs and resources, head to sponserve.net or search for Sponserve on Facebook, Twitter or LinkedIn.